the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hi, it's Hugh Hewitt. Welcome to the interview with Hugh Hewitt, sponsored by AndrewandTodd.com. Andrew and Todd are with Sierra Pacific Mortgage. They help you with all your real estate lending needs. If you're refinancing your home, if you're buying a new home, if you're a senior who wants a reverse mortgage, if you're a veteran who doesn't want to put any money down, whatever it is, if you're in the private real estate market for yourself, and maybe you want an investment property, try AndrewandTodd.com or call 888 Now on to the interview with Hugh Hewitt. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. The interview today is with former United States Secretary of State Michael Pompeo. Mr. Secretary, welcome back. Hugh, it's great to be with you, and I love the bumper music. We didn't start the fire. (laughs) We did not start any (laughs) fires. Uh, Mr. Secretary, I'm looking at a brand-new website, CAVPAC. Tell us about CAVPAC. So I've created CAVPAC to help the American people get their message out. I'm going to lead it, but we're going to travel all across the country talking about the things that matter most to hardworking middle-class Americans, talking about the work that we did these last four years and why it's important we get good candidates, conservative candidates elected in 2022, not just taking back the House. I've I've been part of that before. I I was elected in 2010 when we threw Nancy Pelosi out of the speakership. We're going to do it again, but making sure we win in city council races and county commission races all across America. These are the things that matter to the American people, these issues about family and being able to practice their faith. And I was a young cavalryman. That's where CAVPAC comes from. Uh, we, we rode to the sound of the guns. We were first to the fight. CAVPAC's going to do the same thing. I hope folks will go to CAVPAC.com and see what it is we're doing. We're, we're working hard. We've done dozens of events. We'll do dozens more talking about these things that matter and helping make sure that our conservative voices are heard all throughout the country. Now, on one level, simply as a matter of design and messaging, I love this. I told you that. I think CAVPAC is maybe the first pack that's come along since CPAC, but I actually believe people will be able to remember CAVPAC Cavalry. They'll get it. They'll remember it. I want a coffee mug with CAVPAC.com on it. Uh, But in terms of the candidates you are looking to support, what are sort of the the must-have qualities for Mike Pompeo's CAVPAC to get behind them? So, Hugh, the mug is on the way. (laughs) <laughs> we're looking. We're, we're looking for. We're looking for men and women who are fearless, who are prepared to confront the challenges that that we face today. Not the ones from ten or twenty years ago, but the ones we face today. I, you know, I, I negotiated with the Taliban. I was with Chairman Kim. The great threats are on the home front. Our, our educational system is a mess. We're teaching kids the wrong things. We got to get that right. Got to make sure that our young people, who our, our young women, don't have to compete against young men in sports. We can't be. We can't have our voices counseled. These these ideas, you. We we know these from from history. These founding ideas about uh, freedom and how Americans in the small places, in our PTA meetings, in our city council meetings, this is the place that we protect our families. It's the place we grow jobs and create opportunities that are like the opportunities that this great nation has given to me. If we, if we get that right, if we get it right here at home, I am confident that the adversaries we face abroad will be something that we can deal with. But if we get it wrong at home, if we if we don't return to our founding ideas, 
and the centrality of the capacity for people to speak their mind and to live their lives in the way they want without $6 trillion of federal spending infiltrating every corner of their life, then we, we risk the Republican. It's worth fighting for, and it's why CapPAC's going to stay at it. Now, uh, when people donate to CapPAC, they are in essence saying, I trust Mike Pompeo to find candidates for Congress, for Senate, for state houses, for state races, for city councils, you mentioned. Uh, what, are you looking for... Uh, exclusively veterans, or are you open to people who haven't served in uniform? Is CAFPAC going to support the most conservative person who can win to use the Buckley rule? Will it get involved in primaries? All those questions, Mr. Secretary. Yes, uh, the, the Buckley rule is a good one. Uh, I, I've been at this conservative fight for an awful long time, Hugh. Uh, we're going to find the most conservative person, but you got to win. Uh, you can go see the site. We've campaigned in primaries already. I'm working for with Sarah Sanders in Arkansas. Uh, I'm supporting governor or governor to be Zeldin in New York. Uh, those are Republican interparty battles. But I've helped Ashley Hinson in Iowa, Congressman Bacon in Nebraska. We're going to travel the whole country. We helped in New Hampshire, a legislative candidate to succeed in a special election runoff. The, the breadth and scope of what we're doing is that we're going to make sure that every place our voices need to be heard, they can be heard. So, yes, we're going to find those conservative candidates that are fearless and prepared to do all the hard work it takes to win elections, and we're going to rally people around them. I think CAPAC is it, it's just a, a, an organization whose time is upon us, and I urge everyone who gets involved in politics to go to CAVPAC.com. Mr. Secretary, a couple of questions. Um, Michael Waltz is a congressman from Florida like you, an Army veteran. He's a Green Beret. You're a cavalry man. My son works for Michael Waltz. I always disclose that. But Congressman Waltz joined up with Jim Banks, a Navy man, Claudia Tenney from New York, to introduce a motion of censor of the squad. And Congressman Waltz subsequently labeled the squad the Hamas caucus. Uh, First, would you vote for that measure of censure? And second, Nancy Pelosi called the label of the Hamas caucus dangerous, which is their reflexive attack on anything that's actually effective. (laughs) Is it dangerous? And would you vote for the censure motion? Well, yeah, I haven't seen the motion. I, it sounds like it's something that I would almost certainly vote for. These people have made their case for supporting these terrorists. You, it's not a matter of calling them a name. I don't. I never think name calling's worth much. But in the end, we know the importance of the relationship between these two great democracies, the United States and Israel. We know that Hamas is trying to undermine it, as is Hezbollah, the Shia militias in Iraq, and the Houthis in Yemen. We know Iran is behind all of it. And we have members of Congress who are acting in ways that are inconsistent with America's best interest in preserving the relationship with the United States and Israel. So I am encouraged by what Ms. Tenney, Jim Banks, and uh, Michael Waltz are doing. We, we, We have to be honest in the language that we use. We have to call out those who are trying to undermine the things that keep us safe. And if this resolution goes even partway to achieving that, it'd be a wonderful thing. Now, when Congresswoman Omar said that the United States, Israel, Hamas, and Taliban are all on the same page. I think that shocked members of her own caucus, but not enough that they will join in this censure. And I don't know how often you ran into that in the closed meetings in the Arab world when you were negotiating the Abraham Accords. I do not believe that is a widely shared point of view among our Middle East partners who are not committed to the destruction of the state of Israel, because Hamas is. No, they they get that they they get that this is outrageous. They they would see this, and they would react frankly not that much differently than we we did. 
we understood that, that, that comparing, that somehow creating a moral equivalency between the Taliban and the United States is just crazy. And th- they would see this, too. Uh, th- this is a fight about sovereignty and about peace and prosperity in the Middle East. And to, to say somehow that the efforts that the United States have made and that Israel have made to, to defend our own nations, to preserve security in the region, and compare that to those who are trying to do the very opposite, trying to annihilate Israel from the face of the earth. It is deeply immoral and it is offensive. And I think those Arab state leaders would share in that view. Now, I was encouraged yesterday, the UAE foreign minister called uh, Naftali Bennett, the new prime minister of of Israel, or maybe the new foreign minister of Israel after the Netanyahu government was replaced. Do you you take that as a signal that the work that you did on the uh, Abraham Accords is going to endure? I do. It's a it's a good sign, and I'm also not surprised. Uh, uh, good leaders in the United Arab Emirates are going to understand that uh, whoever is leading Israel, Israel make its own internal political decisions. Whoever's leading that country, uh, they they want to have a relationship. They want to recognize them. They want to do business with them. They want to be security partners with them. They they want they they don't want Israel to vanish. They recognize its right as the rightful Jewish homeland to exist inside of the Middle East. And they want to help other countries come to that same understanding, too. So, yes, I'm encouraged. I think the Abraham Accords here will prove enduring because they're the right thing for the people of the region. Okay, I want to turn now to NATO, Mr. Secretary. I have two stories in front of me. New York Times, shifting photo focus, NATO views China as a global security challenge, saying it's the first time they have ever done so. NATO expands focus to China, says the Washington Post, a win for Biden in his first trip to the battered alliance. I do not think of the alliance as battered, and I do not think this is the first time they've ever paid attention to China. But what do you think? Well, those, those are both faults. NATO is not battered. Indeed, it is $400 billion stronger than it was when President Trump took office. Secretary General Stoltenberg talks about $440 billion more European resources going to secure European countries and to support NATO. I'm really happy about the results we got to make NATO stronger and better during my four years in the Trump administration. Second, uh, this effort was begun with NATO on the Trump administration's watch. I personally worked with Secretary General Stoltenberg at NATO to put a team of Americans inside of NATO to provide awareness, to help them understand the threat that the Chinese communists pose to NATO, whether that's through space or cyber or information warfare. Europe is subject to that in the same way that the United States is. And we began this. We put Americans, we put State Department officials inside of NATO to do this hard work. I'm happy that they identified it as a challenge. But, Hugh, I have to be honest. To describe the Chinese Communist Party as a challenge is a gross understatement of what the real risk is. Uh, a, a, a challenge is making making sure that you show up at the meeting on time. An adversary is someone who wants to create a hegemonic empire across the globe. That's what China is. We need to treat it as such. And I hope NATO will continue to come to understand this threat in a way that I do and that I think you do as well. Well, this was my understanding of what had happened, that we had introduced a Sinos-specific uh, focus into NATO years ago. And so I was reading these these uh, stories with my eyebrows raised as sort of Biden talking <laughs> points. When did that get going, and, and what does it mean to integrate a China awareness into NATO? Is it a threat analysis? Is it looking at their border in Afghanistan and their exploitation of China, uh, uh, China's exploitation of Afghanistan's mineral resources, obviously on their agenda? What did it mean for 
the Trump administration, Secretary Pompeo and the others to get NATO to focus on this? So this was an initiative that I began along with Secretary General Stoltenberg at NATO. Uh, he asked us to resource to put a team in. We agreed that we would do that. There were three central focuses. One was on the threat, the ideology, the mission set of the Chinese Communist Party and how that would impact NATO's capacity to deliver its security mission across the transatlantic. Second, we want to have a real focus on cyber. NATO needs to make sure that it's prepared to respond to the Chinese Communist Party's cyber threat in ways that it didn't have to consider five or 10 or 15 years ago. And the final push you was broader than that. It was about the economic and uh, uh, where, where the line between economic and national security issues meet and how NATO needed to be prepared to ensure that it had the right tools, the right technology to confront the CCP um, in that uh, space as well. We worked hard on it. This would have been 2018 when we began this work. Uh, to hear them say that this is new and original and something that was created in the Biden administration, I suppose is unsurprising. I, I guess I don't care so much about credit. I hope they'll just continue to do this important work. Now, I also raised with Admiral Stavridis last hour with Senator Cotton this hour. NATO is really PATO now. It's it's no longer the North Atlantic. It's the Pacific and Atlantic. It's one world, one ocean, one cyber world. Do you see NATO ever evolving to encompass at least the interests of Japan, India, Australia, and other democracies so that we have a one shield approach to the CCP? Well, it'll be interesting to see how this evolves. We started with a separate effort with the countries in the region. We called it the Quad, right? The Australians, the Japanese, and the Indians, along with the United States, to begin to build out a set of security understandings connected to those Pacific economies and nations. We were clearly also working to coordinate those with NATO. How precisely this evolves will depend on, frankly, how Xi Jinping behaves. But make no mistake about it, this idea that there are separate theaters that do not intersect and overlap and that can be completely disconnected is, is a misunderstanding of the way the world works today and the way our adversaries behave. We, we will need to make sure that these efforts, the effort in the Pacific and the effort in Europe, are closely coordinated. And what, what institutions deliver that best, I think only time will tell. Let me play for you, uh, President Biden, at NATO yesterday. If President Trump had said this about the Democrats at a NATO thing, we, we'd be hearing about it today. Still, they'd be upset. But here is President Biden at NATO yesterday answering some sort of a question. Cut number 17. The Republican Party is vastly diminished in numbers. The leadership of the Republican Party is fractured. And the... Trump wing of the party is the bulk of the party, but it makes up a significant minority of the American people. And we'll see. We'll you see. Know, uh, Mr. Secretary, we will see how CAVPAC does, but you are a leader of the Republican Party. You proudly served with President Trump. You proudly supported the Bush administration. I'm sure you were a Reaganaut whenever you were allowed to be after you left the military. What do you make about a president of the United States politicizing a NATO visit? That's crazy. I, I saw that a little bit ago. To, to stand at the podium and, and conduct an analysis of the uh, other party that you're not part of in front of a NATO audience is something I, I don't. I don't know that I've seen that that clear a sort of stepping outside of the function for which you are there in an awfully long time. Shoot, if I'd have done it, I'd have had 15 hatchback violations too. Ah! Uh, this, this, this is. Um, 
this is this is inappropriate. Uh, his analysis is wrong as well. I think Kafpak will be part of proving him wrong. Well, that's it. And my last question, Kafpak is, I mean, it will be a leadership pack like Leader McConnell's leadership pack. And yesterday, McConnell was on this program. I think there ought to be a McConnell Award at the Federalist Society for what he did for the Supreme Court. And liberal heads exploded, left-wing heads exploded. <laughs> Just what what will Kafpak, will it get involved in things like judicial appointments as well, domestic issues as well as national security and foreign affairs? It'll it'll certainly have every element of the conservative movement. All, all you talked about Reagan, all three legs of Reagan's stool um, will be part of what Capback is trying to push forward. We're going to be very focused on uh, the U.S. elections here in November of 2022, not only at the federal level but the state and local levels. Well, we've got to win everywhere. We have to build the bench, and we have to make the case for why the conservative movement continues to be the most consistent argument for freedom and the most exceptional nation in the world. I think CAPAC can be an important part of that. I hope folks will join me in it. Thank you, Mr. Secretary. I'm looking forward to that mug, and we'll talk about CAPAC as we move forward. Have a great day. Thank you. So long, sir. Welcome back, America. Chew Hewitt. Joined now by an old friend of the show, Senate leader of the GOP, Mitch McConnell. Leader McConnell, welcome back. Good to have you again. Hey, you. Glad to be with you. Now, most Americans, and certainly Kentucky's senior senator, are familiar with pre-race odds at the Kentucky Derby. This year, they were from 9 to 2 up to 49 to 1. Where would you put the odds in that context for the $974 billion hard infrastructure proposal from the Gang of Ten? Oh, well, you know, maybe 50-50. Look, um, both sides would like to get an infrastructure bill. Uh, here are the red lines on our side. We're not going to reopen the 2017 tax bill. It was the major factor in bringing us the, the best economy in 50 years as of February 2020 before the pandemic hit. And we want it to be paid for. And um, the gas tax produces a certain amount of money every year. That's declined some because of fuel efficiency and electric cars. To the extent that we want to go above that, it needs to be credibly uh, paid for. And our suggestion is it just uh, flooded the country with an enormous amount of money. Uh, states and localities are literally awash in extra money. Uh, a lot of that is still in the pipeline. Why don't we repurpose that uh, uh, earmarket for infrastructure, which most localities would prefer to spend it on anyway, and that would be a good way to get a pretty robust infrastructure bill on a bipartisan basis without raising taxes. But any tax raise means red line means no 60 votes. Well, they're going to try. Yeah. I mean, if they want it to be bipartisan, it'll it'll have to be done with 60 votes. And, you know, every single Republican voted for the 2017 tax bill. Uh, we think clearly produced the best economy in 50 years, we don't want to broke, break what isn't, doesn't need fixing. And so raising the taxes, revisiting the 30-year comprehensive tax bill is not a good way to go forward. So if I was laying down a line based on that, Leader, I think it would be like 9 to 2 or, or, or perhaps 20 to 1. <laughs> doesn't sound good. Let me ask you about What's going on in Geneva? The JCPOA is trying to be resurrected. Last time it was approved on a handshake deal and some crazy upside-down vote. Should it be submitted as a treaty to the United States consistent with the Constitution if they are once again dealing with the mullahs? 
Well, look, if, if, if it had been done by treaty initially, it wouldn't have been subject to being walked away from by the previous administration. Now, I think the previous administration did the right thing in, in ending the JCPOA because it was ineffective. Uh, it allowed the uh, Iranians to get an enormous amount of cash. It did not require them to restrict all of their collateral activities, for example, supplying all the weapons to Hamas and Hezbollah and being the principal troublemaker throughout the, the Middle East. Um, yeah, if you want to have a binding agreement with a foreign country, according to the Constitution, the way you do that is you have to get the treaty ratified. So that, that's why it, it didn't stand up. It's because the new administration came in and uh, decided it wasn't a good deal. And frankly, they were correct. And I worry about this renewed flirtation with the Iranians that this administration will make some kind of feckless unilateral agreement uh, again. I also worry, uh, Leader, about my tax returns. And I see this morning you are endorsing the probe of the leak of the very wealthy, the super wealthy. But the, the IRS under President Obama abused the rights of Americans with the Patriot Group name in their in their title. Now it looks like the IRS is doing the same thing. This is illegal. It's criminal. Is the Senate going to get into it? Well, I have a feeling the Senate majority may not have much interest in it, but certainly we do. And you're right. It, it's deja vu all over again, as Yogi Berra would say. Uh, uh, back when Obama was president, the IRS was harassing Tea Party groups, and now they're breaking the, the law. Look, either the IRS leaked this or there was a hack. And uh, yeah, my guess is the IRS, somebody at the IRS leaked this in order to affect the, uh, the tax debate and remind uh, people that there are some very wealthy Americans. There are some very wealthy Americans. But it's important to remember, we don't tax wealth, we tax income. Income is what we tax. But in any event, that's not the point. Our tax returns are, by law, confidential because of just this kind of shenanigans. These people, ought to, whoever did this, ought to be hunted down and thrown into jail. I, I agree with you, Mr. Leader. Now, I want to, this takes a little bit of a long intro for the audience, Senator, but I want to make it. We are waiting later today for the Supreme Court. They might rule in Cedar Point Nursery, which is about uncompensated takings. I'm hoping they rule today in Fulton versus City of Philadelphia, which is a religious freedom case. Next year, they're going to decide the New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Corlett. That's a, fifth, a Second Amendment case. Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization, which is a, an abortion case, possibly the Harvard's admission case, which I hope they take. All of these cases, those five and there are many others, I'm looking forward to. We need clarity for and we've needed clarity forever on long, unsettled areas of constitutional law. It's been five years since the terrible day, February 13th, that Justice Scalia died. But on the same day, you took the most significant decision in con law since Brown v. Vord, which is a good decision, and Roe v. Wade, which was an awful decision, when you said the American people should have a voice in the selection of their next Supreme Court. Therefore, this vacancy should not be filled until we have a new president. Had you not done so, it's my view that President Trump would not have been elected, and we wouldn't have Justices Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Barrett. Now, you occasionally get 
heat from the right uh, among the more populous people and some of the folks in my business. Does it does it just chaff you that they do not bring up that the court and the Constitution would be in quicksand up to its neck if you had not taken the position you did five years ago and we did not have the court that we do today where we're looking forward and not in fear at a series of decisions this year and next? Well, look, you can't be the Republican leader of the Senate and not take a few slings and arrows, but I do think the issue that you raise is the single most consequential thing I've done in my time as, as Majority Leader of the Senate. Uh, preserve the Scalia vacancy for the Gorsuch uh, appointment. Uh, the Brett Kavanaugh appointment was certainly challenging and controversial. And, of course, we had very little time left when Justice Ginsburg passed away, and that took a good deal of priority and, uh, I think, skill to get Amy Coney Barrett through. And I think we'll find out what, what a difference it makes the American people to have uh, Supreme Court justices and, for that matter, 54 new circuit judges who believe in the quaint notion that maybe a job to judge is to actually follow the law. Uh, the Sixth Circuit, Judge Thapar, one of your friends, and I think believe you sponsored his nominee, they came down with a great decision on the unconstitutionality of race-based punishments or benefits. And i that's a Sixth Circuit decision. I don't know if the court will take that up, but you're right. We're getting great decisions from the circuit. We're also now about to get nominees from Joe Biden. And that's fine. That's what presidents do. They nominate. Do you expect Senator Manchin to be with the Republicans on the nominees who might be more radical than is outside the norm? I mean, we had some pretty conservative originalists. I don't mind them having some pretty liberal living constitution enthusiasts, but there are some radicals out there that I just don't think is, are have the temperament for the bench. Do you think Senator Manchin would join, or Senator Sinema for that matter? I don't know. You know, Manchin voted against uh, Barrett, and also Sinema voted against Barrett, and they are, they are Democrats. I do respect them both for their uh, important decision to save the Senate, uh, not eliminating the filibuster. That's an extraordinarily important institutional part of the Senate. I admire that uh, greatly. Uh, how they're going to vote on judges, I guess we'll have to wait and see. I'll come back to that in a second. But while we're on the filibuster, is it just Senators Manchin and Cinema that for some reason the press can find them? They can never find Maggie Hassan. They can never find Raphael Warnock. They can never find Mark Kelly or Cortez Masto, the four Democrats who are in danger. They can't find them to ask them about the filibuster or D.C. statehood or any of the other wacky ideas like expanding and packing the Supreme Court. Have you talked to them? Are they actually in favor of the filibuster or are they just hiding? Well, I think most of them have chosen not to say. And um, my guess is Schumer with a 50-50 Senate will not try this unless he's got all of his ducks in a row. So we, we may never find out uh, what those other senators actually feel about this important uh, rule, which is the essence of the Senate. I mean, that is the essence of the Senate, the legislative filibuster. It requires us to have a 60-vote majority to, to do things. That's been the way the Senate's been for quite a long time. Uh, we never, you know, President Trump wanted me to, to get rid of it, and I said politely, no, we're not going to do that. The institution of the Senate is too important for either side to take a short-term advantage by blowing it up. Let me ask you, if you regain the majority— 
in 2022 for the Republicans. And there's a very good chance of that happening. I'll come back to the individual races in a second. Would the rule that you applied in 2016 to the Scalia vacancy apply in 2024 to any vacancy that occurred then? Well, I think in the middle of a presidential election, if you have a Senate of the opposite party of the president, you have to go back to the 1880s to find the last time a vacancy was filled. So I think it's highly unlikely. In fact, no, I don't think either party, if it controlled, if it were different from the president, would confirm a Supreme Court nominee in the middle of an election. That. Uh, what was different in 2020 was we were of the same party as the Correct. president, yeah. and that's why we went ahead with it. That's why I think people who are, are angst about Justice Breyer stepping down right now are just nuts. If he retired next year after the abortion case, I just don't see him retiring with Dobbs and, and the Second Amendment on the docket and possibly affirmative action. Now, let me ask you about the key thing, leader, about the 2023 term. Again, if you were back as the Senate Republican leader, and I hope you are, and a Democrat retires at the end of 2023 and they're 18 months, that would be the Anthony Kennedy precedent. Would they get a fair shot at a hearing, not a radical, but a normal mainstream liberal? Well, we'd have to wait and see what, what happens. Uh, you mentioned Justice Breyer. I do want to give him a shout out, though, because he joined what Justice Ginsburg said in 2019, that nine is the right number for the Supreme Court. And I, I admire him for that. I think even the liberal justices on the Supreme Court have made a clear court packing is a terrible idea. A hundred percent agree. Now, President Biden will be advancing many very liberal judicial nominees at the district court level. Democratic senators from their states, when there were two Democrats, blocked many fine judicial nominees, especially in my old state of California, but all, all across the country, wherever there were two Democrats, they blocked district court nominees. Will Senator Schumer and his caucus adopt the same deference that you demonstrated toward Democratic senators during your tenure when it comes to Biden nominees in states with two Republican senators for the district court, Senator McConnell. Well, my understanding is that uh, Dick Durbin, who is now the chairman of the, of the Judiciary Committee, is going to honor the blue slip for district judges. So as you suggest, what that means is in a state where you have uh, one or two Republican senators, they'd have to sign off. They may not be able to choose the nominee, but they'd have to sign off on it. And my understanding is that the, uh, the new chairman of the Judiciary Committee is going to continue that. That's a good that's good news. Now, I, I want to turn to politics, leader. Missouri, North Carolina, Ohio and Pennsylvania are the four states in which Republicans have to defend open seats. Uh, the NRSC, Chairman Scott, has told me he will not get involved in in primaries. But will your political action committee in which you have a decisive role, the Senate Leadership Fund, get involved? Because I am very afraid of outliers getting the nomination and losing. For example, in Missouri, I think we have some unelectable Republicans who want nominations and they just cannot get the nomination and we're going to lose easily defended seats. Will the will the leadership fund be involved? Yeah, if necessary. I mean, you're, you're recalling the same period I am, 2010 and 2012, when we nominated uh, four or five candidates by being passive in primaries that simply could not appeal to the general election audience. Uh, there's no question that in order to win, you have to, in, in most states that are going to determine who's in the majority next time, 
you have to appeal to a general election audience. And some of the candidates who filed in these primaries clearly aren't. Uh, I'll be keeping an eye on that. Uh, hopefully we won't have to intervene, but if we do, we will. All right. I'm glad to hear that. Last question, Leader McConnell. Uh, last week when David Bossie was on with me, I referred to he and Chief Justice Roberts and you as the triumvirate of First Amendment because of Citizens United. It's because of your long battle to keep the First Amendment applicable to political speech that we got to Citizens United. It's because Bossie brought it and Roberts ruled the right way that we have free speech in the United States. I am concerned about the Presidential Debate Commission, and some of those people might be your friends. Bossy and I want it delegitimized because they screw Republican. What do you think about the networks generally in the Presidential Debate Commission specifically in Republican senatorial primary debates, in Senate debates, in presidential debates? Well, no one makes the candidates uh, participate. And uh, I think at the presidential level where these uh, – where the commission operates, if, if a Republican nominee feels he's not being fairly treated, he doesn't have to choose to debate through the rules of the Presidential Debating Commission. So um, it's a voluntary decision on the part of the two candidates for president as to whether or not uh, they participate. So you've got the option not to. That gives you some leverage. And uh, if it shapes up in 2024 that the Republican nominee feels like he's not getting a fair deal, you can say, uh, we're not going to do it this way. Or it could be reformed. Do you think it can be fixed? Well, it's a voluntary association. The two candidates basically uh, decide to participate through this uh, group that sets the rules. And I think the best way to change the rules would be to say, look, I'm not going to participate under this set of circumstances. Well said. Leader McConnell, thank you for your time. Great to talk to you again. Continue. I, I hope that you stop new taxes. That is not the Republican way. I'm pretty sure you will. Thank you, Leader. Thank you. Bye-bye. That concludes today's episode of The Interview with Hugh Hewitt. Thank you for listening. Make sure you come back and check out all the other podcasts on the Salem Podcast Network. And remember to thank our sponsors, andrewandtodd.com. If you believe in long-form interviews like I do, then do your real estate transactions with Andrew Del Rey and Todd Avakian. I've known both men for a long time. AndrewandTodd.com. Go there, answer a couple of questions. They'll tell you what's best to do with your house or call them at 888-888-1172. You'll be glad you did and you'll be glad that you listened to the next episode of The Interview.